This episode of Probably Science is brought to you by Wondrium. For a limited time, you can sign up and get a free month trial of unlimited access to their entire library if you go to wondrium.com slash probably. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash probably. Probably Science. Hey everyone, welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Andy Wood. Hello there. Hey, let's just just we we always spend too long before we get into our guests. Let's just let's I don't just know jump if we s- do, but okay, I sometimes yeah. do. We it, it's been known occasionally. We've all right. We're doing it now. Now we're now we're keeping our guests waiting by talking about how we shouldn't be keeping our guests waiting. Is the excellent and incredibly funny NATO Green. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, handsome Gentile Andy Wood. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, How did you and, know my family's nickname for me? Why would my family call me? <laughs> and, it's just and, it's what everyone calls everyone in Andy's family. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's like uh, it's just whenever I'm around you, I'm like, man, that guy, he's such a handsome, gentle-looking person. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I like the, the the qualification of it is what bothers me. Like, the, um, uh, the lower bar or higher bar? Yeah. No, it's know. just it, what it means is that it's very exotic to me. Oh, it's exotic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, the exotic wasp. It is a yeah. very rare breed I know. in this, in this <laughs> land. Thank yeah, you. you know when you're in a very waspy area, you're like, this place is so vibrant. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's so brimming, colorful. Brim, brimming with life. <laughs> Everyone's singing for some reason. Yeah. NATO. Um, let, we'd like to ask our guests before we get deep into the science stories, what, if anything, is your background in science? And that's ranged from classes you liked or hated or took or didn't take to blowing stuff up in the woods with your friends. Right. So uh, my background in science uh, is mostly secondhand. Like my formal science instruction stopped in high school. Uh, I, my And the only thing that I can tell you of what I learned from high school science is my high school chemistry telling the class repeatedly, be the king and queen of partial credit. Um, uh, <laughs> what now? <laughs> be the king and queen of partial credit. Like, show your work on how you're doing. Like, there was something, I don't even remember. There were chemistry, like, equations. Is, are there equations in chemistry? There are. Uh, but... Uh, but like I said, secondhand. So like my dad was a, was a high school science teacher for many okay. years. My wife has a PhD in medical anthropology. Okay. Um, that's, that's legit. And, and I like proofread her PhD dissertation on socialist science, which is what her field is. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I, I don't, I think you both know this about me, but I am the country's only semi-functional hybrid of comedian and union organizer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <laughs> uh, in the course of my union work, I do a lot of work with healthcare unions. So I like end up paying a fair amount of attention to, you know, like evidence-based healthcare kind of stuff. That's right. Because you, you, I didn't fully know about your organization until when I was up at Sketchfest, you in San Francisco, which is where you are, you, you organized a meeting between comedians and narrow the the pro like abortion rights charity or organization to basically that's right yeah link up comedians with the organization so they they basically wanted people to help communicate their message yeah that's right i like you know i'm a like i'm a comedian organizer so i'm like i you know i always work on elections and i'm connected i pay attention to what the activists are doing and for for several years i had a project with narol to try to like basically do open-ended issue briefings for comedians to learn about the state of like what was going on with pro-choice advocacy so that people could both like have you know informed jokes and then also like what ended up ended up happening is that there were comedians that we would meet with who would end up like in the writer's room on you know some late night show and then some news story would break and then they would call us to like fact check uh you know or get more background information on the stuff that they were working on interesting yeah, it's pretty awesome. I, I was watching um, the Boots Riley movie, Sorry to Bother You, and uh, Keith Stanfield's character starts doing this labor organization, and I turned to whoever was watching it with, I was like, my friend NATO does this, and then you appeared on screen five seconds later. <laughs> <laughs> right, I actually, uh, yeah, so, um, we, you know, after he did the principal casting, Boots called me and was like, hey, I need your dryness. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I, I, I 
got to uh, have a seat in Sorry to Bother You, which was great fun. And people who didn't already know me mostly didn't catch it because I was standing next to Tessa Thompson and W. Kamau Bell. And, <laughs> and it's like the story of my brand of like, who's that white guy with the more famous black people? That, like that's... <laughs> uh, that's 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 my that's my groove but um uh and so and actually like when we were filming you know we were filming in downtown oakland and so i'm standing on the street with boots and tessa thompson and kamau and lakeith stanfield and jermaine fowler and like black folks in oakland are coming up to us being like oh my god i know all of you can i take your picture and i was like i know that when you say i know all y'all you're not including me in that like we don't need to pretend i'll take the picture you know (laughs) So, can your uh, accountant uh, please take the picture of me with? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the you know, there's this whole scene where where, where Stephen uh, Stephen Yuan plays a uh, uh, like a guy who gets jobs in order to organize unions, and the term for that is assaulter. And I did that for many years before I became a staff union organizer. And I so didn't know that either. Came, when when the movie came out, I like tweeted a whole critique of like his his organizing methodology and like what <laughs> what real organizers do and don't do um you know so that people can learn the lessons of uh of how to do how to do salting properly and wh- why what what was wrong in his technique is that a thing you have to sort of keep under i would assume sort of under your hat as you're applying for the job <laughs> like yeah you cover your tracks for so they Absolutely. And like some there are some companies um, that are like have their job interview process is designed to screen out people, not just salters, but people who have any kind of politics. Um, You know, like I like I had a friend once who tried to get a job salting at a Whole Foods. And in the job interview, um, they asked her, like, who was your role model? And she was like, oh, my role model was my grandmother who was running of mexico for organizing a union of mine workers and they're like <laughs> okay thank you next you know um so like Am- you know big companies like amazon and whole big companies like amazon and whole foods which is the same thing now like you know have like, a strategy of how they des- are des- trying to um to filter out people who have any kind of political inclination and so part of it is like the trick part in, in the interview is when you is if you sort of demographically fit with the workforce somehow, you can kind of get away with it more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was one point where a union wanted to like deploy me to go get a job salting in a, like a fish processing factory that was all Asian immigrant workers. And I was like, you know, I can't pull that off. Like, what am I saying? <laughs> to job like, you know, so, um, so mostly I, I would like sort of, you know, be like, hey, I'm just, you know, in my 20s and I'm struggling. And, you know, this was all in my 20s. And I, you know, I just need to pay off my student loans. And, you know, and I was getting jobs that was a lot of other people in their 20s. And then, um, and then once the union organizing drive goes public, like, you know, there's a billion dollar industry of uh, anti-union consultants. And so they'll bring in these union busting consultants of these major national law firms. And then they'll start going through the workforce to try to ID who the, who the instigators are. And so they uh, immediately, they figured, they figured out that I was, that they thought I was an instigator and ID'd me. And so, you know, we go public, I get ID'd, uh, the, um, the workers, like the you know sub, the boss is telling that to the workers, and then I you know the day of our first job action, our first like protest, a bunch of my coworkers confronted me and they said, "Hey, the boss says you're a union plant. Is that true?" And I was like, "No, nah, man, I'm not a plant. I'm a communist." And they're like, "Oh, cool, 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 cool." Um, <laughs> so um, this this was when I was organizing bike messengers, and like it, during the course of the campaign, the companies would like roll out like anti-union swag um like they you know at one point they gave us bottled water with labels that said as clear as water vote no on the union or they gave us like like chocolate coins that were printed to look like like poker chips that would say don't gamble with your future vote no on the union um and there's just like there's a script of union busting stuff to do that employers do and so after you once you know the script you can in an organizing drive you tell the workers like like i used to tell workers it's you know the society has changed but when i first started in the 90s i could tell workers like i guarantee you that right before the union election the highest ranking woman in the company will cry publicly mm-hmm. and people would be like that's crazy 
how could you like she's she's so tough why would she do and then like clockwork it would happen and then people would be like you're a prophet (laughs) (laughs) with the ph obviously yes yeah that's that's amazing that's amazing um by the way speaking of salting I was curious, did your, um, sorry to bother you, co-star Army Hammer ever eye anybody with uh, seasonings in hand at all? (laughs) Uh, He was not on set when I was there, Okay, I will say. Um, So uh, um, when I was there, we were um, filming my scene on One Street of Oakland, and then around the corner, they they were, at the same time, they were filming the other scene. uh, the scene where all the people in uh, like uh, have a coke and smile or whatever uh, like hats uh, uh, or afro wigs are are like protesting together and the football players are there um, so they were filming this huge crowd scene right around the corner that's so like all of o- downtown Oakland was like cordoned off for this like boots rally liberated zone damn wow that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's quite the it's quite the lineup. It's a really fun movie. Everyone should should check it out. We, we should get into science stories in a second. Before you, I just want one more question because I want to know what your take is on is the Amazon Union election going to get redone? Yeah, it looks. I mean, it looks like it is going to get redone. Um, I mean, that's the latest order from the National Labor Relations Board, um, and there's like there's a fundamental challenge at the heart of that they're wrestling with that every organizer, you know, uh, has, which is like the, these Amazon warehouses are designed to be shitty jobs where there's a hundred percent turnover, you know, a hundred percent of the workers turn over a year. And so, and the fact of that makes them hard to organize because it takes time to talk to everybody and get them sort of ready for the fight. And so, um, so it's encouraging that the NLRB is ruling for them to rerun the election. And you may have this. Uh, there's no reason you would have caught this. But, you know, just in the last uh, month, Joe Biden has appointed uh, people to the National Labor Relations Board. So this even though Biden has been in office since January, this was the month where the National Labor Relations Board flipped from Republican majority to Democratic majority just because of how the filling of those vacancies went. Um, so there's a we're expecting that starting in September, there's about to be a flood of pro-union uh, rulings coming out of the NLRB as a result of that. Um, that they appointed union lawyers. So hopefully the legal landscape will get better, but the fundamental like organizing challenges remain, and it's not clear that anyone has a particularly good idea about how to solve that problem. Uh, and uh, were the jobs designed to be, I mean, and I guess you can't get in the heads of Amazon execs, but like the fast turnover is by design, I'm assuming, or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I can't get in their heads, but yes, 100%. You know, the jobs are, are not designed to be careers. They're designed to be burn and churn jobs, um, partly in order to discourage unionization. Um, I think, uh, um, what, what I want to say Radiolab recently had some pretty interesting um, stu- episodes about um, like how like how they automate like the 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 ai that they use to like route people through those warehouses it is just so horrendous what they do to people Mm -hmm. um so you know it's really designed to wear people out and probably um you know there is the you know those workers can organize and i believe it's like a critically important challenge that we have to solve like for the you know, for the sake of addressing economic inequality as a whole, like we have to figure out how to organize these way Amazon distribution centers, but it's not going to look, you know, the, the sort of, it's going to require, um, uh, well, you know, going back to the 1930s, like there was a huge wave of unionization in the mid thirties w- that was driven, you know, where thousands of workers organized in a very short period of time, uh, um, in mostly in factories by doing sit down strikes and major occupations, um and so and that's the you know that's what it's going to take is like sort of not legalistic strategies but direct militant confrontation yeah and by the way not that this should be a reason to or not to but when those trends have happened in the past were they followed by rise in consumer prices and things like that or or not necessarily um 
uh, I mean, to to some extent, like what we've seen generally for, you know, for, I mean, the, the, the sort of natural experiment that's occurred has been around minimum wage, where there's been a whole push, you know, I mean, actually, like you've probably seen, you know, people talk about the fight for 15 and the $15 an hour minimum wage. Right. Um, and actually, you know, this is a point of pride for me because I was one of the authors of the first municipal minimum wage initiative in San Francisco in 2003 oh. um, that... Uh, ultimately was the precursor to the current $15 an hour minimum wage campaign. Um, and, you know, what like at initial, for years, for decades, it was like a conventional wisdom am- among economists that raising the minimum wage would reduce employment. Um, and then it didn't happen uh, w- once we started raising the minimum wage. So usually those fears are like overhyped. That's good to hear. Uh, you know what other fears are, are, are overhyped? Or sufficiently high. What's that, Matt? (laughs) Giant bird-eating centipedes, a story that was sent in by a whole bunch of people. That's overhyped or sufficiently hyped? I don't know, actually. It's probably probably hyped about the right amount. It's probably probably appropriately hyped. It was a very clumsy segue. Let's let's just move on from... But Good I know, segue, though. Thank yes. you. Justin Broad sent in this story. So did Ross McCarroll. I, I feel like at least one other person did, and I apologize for missing you out. But this is a, a story on ABC New, ABC uh, Australia. You, you can see it as well if you look in the comments on the website there, NATO. But giant bird-eating centipedes exist, and they're surprisingly important for their ecosystem. They They may sound like something out of a science fiction film, but they're not, says this ABC News story i don't know if that sounds like something from a science fiction film i don't know if um i don't know i guess i haven't really spent that much time thinking about how big a centipede could possibly get and what animals they may or may not choose to eat but once it becomes sci-fi it's got to be a danger to humans right not just birds yeah i I would say that it would be like i would think of it as something out of sci-fi uh if the centipedes like leapt and ate birds out of the sky in (laughs) mid-flight Right. Is that is that what's happening here? Well, let's find out. Well, or if they could fly themselves. Uh, right. <laughs> if they, but not, like not individually. Like if they had developed powered flight. <laughs> <laughs> Get their own centipede TSA and everything. Yeah. Yeah. On on tiny Phillip Island, part part of the South Pacific's Norfolk Island group, the Phillip Island centipede population can kill and eat up to thirty seven hundred seabird chicks each year. And this is entirely natural. This unique creature endemic to Phillip Island has a diet consisting of an unusually large proportion of vertebrate animals, including seabird chicks. So, As large marine predators, seabirds usually sit at the top of the food chain. But our new study, published uh, in the American Naturalist, demonstrates this isn't always the case. This is bizarre. By the way, this is written in the first person by one of the study authors. That doesn't normally happen in in our new stories. So just just realize that when I'm saying we here, I'm voicing, I, I'm I'm just acting out words by the one of the scientists who carried it out. Uh, Andy I, I and I did we, not I actually we, carry out this study. I just we, wanted to. We played a part by doing this podcast, though. We did, we did, we did, we did play a part, but but maybe not sufficient part to fully claim authorship. Okay. So it's it's not a it's a, it's not actually a news story. It's some somebody's own diary entry. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, so this centipede, this Phillip Island centipede, can grow up to almost one foot long, or just over 30 centimeters. It's armed with a potent venom encased in two pincer-like appendages, which are called... Do you reckon this is a hard C or a soft C, Andy and NATO? Do you think it's forcipules or forcipules? I think forcipules. I think it's the it's hot, soft, soft C. Yeah. Which, I, think, I, I think it's like the Italian, like forcipules. <laughs> 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 which it uses to immobilize its prey. Its body is protected by shield-like armored plates that line each of the many segments that make up its length. On, a war- on warm and humid nights, these strictly nocturnal arthropods hunt through thick leaf litter, navigating a labyrinth of seabird burrowed, uh, burrows peppered across the forest floor. A centipede on the prowl will use its two ultra-sensitive antennae to navigate as it seeks its prey. The centipede hunts an unexpectedly varied range of quarry, from crickets to seabird chicks, geckos, and skinks. It even hunts fish dropped by seabirds, uh... Dropped by seabirds called black noddies. Are you, were you aware of a black noddy? No. 
no uh, no color of naughty has crossed my uh, yeah I, I didn't even i don't even know how many different shades of naughty there are in the natural world but wait it's can a, you release sorry go ahead Nato. it sounds like a weird kind of like 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 a alcoholic drink <laughs> <laughs> you know like like you know like like coffee and roofies and Fernet <laughs> or something mixed together yeah. <laughs> like it, some, something they drink in the 70s and then you just couldn't get the ingredients anymore right. like an egg cream and a black naughty <laughs> yeah. by the way this is very interesting wording it even hunts fish dropped by seabirds called black naughties that make their nest in the tree above so Again, the, the fish are falling out of the nest, and we're giving them credit for hunt. That's like saying your dog hunts pizza sometimes. <laughs> That's not hunting. I mean, they do. Yeah, yeah. I guess it falls yeah. t- falls my, down from a nest above, and they eat it off the ground because it's already dead because it's out of the water. My cat hunts the bump that my foot makes sometimes when I'm in bed. When I was in when I was in college, um the uh there there were people there called scroungers who would who who were like students that would sit in the cafeteria near the place where you would bust your tray when you finished eating and they would like ask if they could eat your leftovers like the food that you were going to throw out mm-hmm. um so and they would just like like and they were tended to be like the most trust fundy kids who would like sit there being like super dirty and they would like you would bring over your like the third of your hamburger or whatever and they'd be like uh dude are you gonna eat that you're like sure you can have it and so uh so according to this article those people would be hunters <laughs> proud hunter warriors yeah yeah by the way did you happen to overlap at all with verona vichet vatican when you were at reed no i don't think so oh okay that was one of the people who beat me in the uh jeopardy tournament was a, a reed grad from i'm guessing around your time the 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 comedian that was at reed when i was there was yoram bauman I don't the, know that name. Yoram Bauman uh, identifies as the world's only stand-up economist. Oh, interesting. <laughs> That's up our alley. Yeah. yeah, all I know is, I guess, you, Veronica, uh, Andrew Michon, and uh, Steve Jobs. That's all I know about Reed. That's us. That's yeah. you. The, Dream team. The big four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I so, think that's sadly, the, now the big three, and I'm, apologi- I'm sorry for your uh, loss. Yeah. And didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't Apple's uh, default font come from the fact that Steve Jobs had taken some, like, Font class at Reed as a as a. I lark. thought it was a calligraphy class, or maybe that that makes more sense. Sure, uh, I, that sounds plausible. Anyhow, yes. <laughs> so Matt, we cut you off with the uh, dropped. The Not at all. It was a worthwhile things. diversion. But the uh, <clears throat> soon after, we, meaning the scientists who carried out their study and and us, um, began our <laughs> research on the ecology of Phillips Island burrowing seabugs. Uh, we discovered the ch- the chicks chicks of black winged petrels were falling prey to the Phillips Island, Phillip Island centipede. We knew this needed further investigation, so we set out to unravel the mystery of this large arthropod's dietary habits. To find out what these centipedes were eating, we studied their feeding activities at night and recorded the prey species they were targeting. We all, sorry, what were you going to say? Matt, and so in all this time that you were doing research on Phillips Island, what was the weather like? <laughs> uh, you know, islandy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was, you know, I was mostly support staff, so um, I wasn't always able to be out in the field. You were doing, you were on admin? Yeah, very much. Yeah, I was like, you know, which is, some say, as important as the main work. Very important, yes. We we also monitored petrol chicks in their burrow nests every few days for months at a time. We eventually began to see consistent injury patterns among chicks that were killed. We even witnessed one centipede attacking and eating a chick. This video and there is, is very graphic. There is a video of it, yeah. Very Cronenbergian. And it's... It, yeah, uh, we could describe what's happening here. There's a... Is it filmed at night? It looks like they have some kind of, yeah, night vision thing going on. And, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty... F- oh, it's pretty full on. It's a lot. But we, we will link to that as we always do. Yeah. The centipede is envenomating. That's such a great word. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know before. that envenomating... Uh, <laughs> it makes sense. What, yeah. what are you up to this weekend? Just, I'm just, just gonna envenomate some shit. <laughs> just chill. <laughs> Netflix and envenomating. It just sounds like one of those bu- uh, bullshit, like business buzzwords that's that's going around these days. Let's just um, 
work on some um, synchronicities and some um, <laughs> envenomating. Let's just ideate on this venoma- envenomation for a little bit. Yeah, let's iterate on it, ideate on it, <laughs> envenomate on it. Yeah. Sure. Or synergies, not synchronicities. I'm sorry. Let's synergize these ideations with some envenomation. <laughs> From... From the rates of predation we observed, we calculated that the Phillip Island centipede population can kill and eat between, this is a fairly hefty number, between 2,109 and 3,724 petrol chicks each year. That is a very specific... It's, why are they so specific? Yeah, those it, that converted very, from a different unit of measurement or something? Yeah, when, when it's individual chicks, we were measuring them in like meters, like right. kilograms of bird, <laughs> and then we converted it to individual birds. It is, I, I, yeah. I don't understand why, if you're giving a range, a range of numbers and a wide range of numbers, by the way, yeah. there's like a sort of eighty percent swing in those numbers, yeah. or um, why it would be that. Definitely no fewer than two thousand one hundred nine, and definitely yeah. no more than three thousand seven hundred twenty-four. Oh, I mean, I can I can tell you exactly why, which is that it, uh, this is the so the authors of this piece. Who are the who are the, the the first person plural here? Luke, Rohan, and Rowan, who are the ones who did the research. They took the time to count a specific number of maimed or eaten petrol chicks, and they want you to know how much fucking work they did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't count. 3,724 Eden petrol chicks for nothing. Somebody's got to know about it. <laughs> yeah, if they said two to 4,000, you'd be like, oh, these guys just spent half an hour out there and did some hand-waving. But, uh, right. I, so I, uh, I didn't mention this at the top, so this is my other exposure to science. My parents spend, uh, my, uh, spend part of the year living in Cape Cod in near, in, in near Woods Hole, where there's a major um, oceanographic uh, research institute. Um, and so like part of their social life is going to science lectures. And so when I go visit them, mm. they like bring me along to science lectures. So like actually just last week I was there and they took me to a lecture of about like the social lives of ants. Um, oh. and then there was like, a, like a, there was another year I was there and there was a physicist who had spent a, you know, all this time studying how Antarctic penguins move to keep each other warm. And then there was another, <laughs> Um, uh, you know, there was another lecture where someone spent like, like months filming horseshoe crabs swimming around in the water to figure out how they like, anyway, so all that is to say is like the, you know, I, I have learned, been, been enough exposed to science that, to know that there is an enormous amount of incredibly tedious and detailed documentation, uh, to build up data. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as Matt can tell you from the hours he spent logging all these numbers on the island, it's oh it's yeah. I mean, to be honest, I, thankless I wasn't really one of the loggers. I was more just kind of there, just to sort of just help support craft services. Yeah, I, I you know, I, that, I I don't want to take credit for the logging because that was actually the logging team. But you know, I was just right. you know, just more admin. Your, your job was to was to alphabetize and file the logs once they were completed. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're not quite at that. Actually, that was more the uh, alphabetizing team. I was just sort of just there. <laughs> <laughs> Give yourself some credit, man. You made the trip all the way down there. Yeah, I mean, I, d- I wasn't exactly like physically there, okay. but still, okay, you know, just played a big, played, played a big part, played right, a big, right. yeah, still a big part. So the Blackwing Petrels, of which there are up to 19,000 breeding pairs on the island, appear to be... Good, res- yeah. good logging there. <laughs> Solid logging. Appear to be resilient to this level of predation. And the, the predation of black-winged petrels by Phillip Island centipedes is an entirely natural predator-prey relationship. By preying on vertebrates, the centipedes trap nutrients brought from the ocean by seabirds and distribute them around the island. In some oh, sense, sure. they... Yeah. In some sense, they've taken the place or ecological niche of predatory mammals which are absent from the island. There's a there's there's some monitoring. There's a picture, by the way, in the article of some active monitoring right now. So, can I ask a question? Yeah. Because um, I, I genuinely don't understand what this means. When it says an entirely natural predator prey relationship, a, as opposed to what? Right. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out also. I think once you start sending like weird clues to the detectives. Uh huh. Like weird coded messages, that's where it becomes unnatural. The zodiac is not yeah. Once you're like writing coded poems and putting them in the personal section of newspapers, that's when 
Right, right. So, so the, like the 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 Philip Island centipede is not the you know the BTK killer of the island, right? <laughs> but I do like right. that they're using natural and sort of the, the whole foods way, like as if to say that oh, it's okay. Like as as somebody is like putting like a, a chloroform soaked rag over your mouth, they can be like oh. Chloroform is a naturally occurring compound. Like, no, I don't care that it's natural. You're eating me. You're killing me. Yeah, I used to have a whole bit about years ago about natural medicine. Basically, like, like plenty of natural. Places. Yeah, heroin it's... is natural. Right. Like a pack of wolves is natural. <laughs> like I saw you got a headache. Here's this angry bear. <laughs> uh, uh, so it, my uh, my wife's research was in was in cuba and in in cuba they have they like uh they develop a lot of their own treatments and so like there are there's you know the cuban scientists are constantly like discovering like treatments for ulcers using something that's derived from a mango peel and a treatment for something else derived from scorpion venom uh so they're super resourceful there about using natural occurring things and then studying them to try to figure out how to make it useful. Yeah, I wasn't saying natural natural things are inherently bad either. It's just like it's sort of not, it's directionally neutral as far as whether it's good or bad for you. It just is, you know. Right. Matt, did we lose you? No, no, I'm still here. Oh, oh, oh sorry, sorry. <laughs> I was just worried about the <laughs> earlier. Lost, uh, lost in the eyes of the guy in the picture. Yeah. <laughs> he is doing dreamy. the monitoring. He is. You know, he's he's taking a picture where he is just, like, l- lying nonchalant. You know, he's doing some logging, but at the same time, you know, he he works hard and he plays hard. Well, yeah, since you were there on the island with him, was he, um, like, if the group were the Beatles, which one is he? You know, like, is he the silent one, the funny one, the heartthrob? <sighs> I'm guessing heartthrob. I, uh, you know... There's a little, there's a little bit of George. There's a little bit of John in there. Okay, no Paul. He seems like a Paul to me, but okay. Riv, nah, nah. He's not. He's not the Paul. What is his right hand doing in this picture? <laughs> <laughs> that is a good point. His right hand. If you look at the article, his right hand is disappearing deep into the ground. Like he's reaching to find some buckling petrol tricks in their burrow. Yep. Is that it? I okay. think is that what he's holding his left hand is that the chicks are super fluffy if that's what he's holding. Yeah, that looks delicious to me. Or is he I, holding... I can't blame those centipedes for eating those motherfuckers. I know. Or, is that, <laughs> or is that like some kind of emotional support thing he brought with him from home, Matt? Yeah, it does holding. look a bit like it's a sort of like just a plush toy or like a yeah. water bottle or something. <laughs> yeah. Again, I would have expected Matt to have the full story on this, but um like again, I was really, you know, very like crucial to the mission but crucial, administrative right. administrative right 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 so um up until a few decades ago the philip island centipede was very rare in fact it was only formally described as a as a species in 1984 after an intensive search in 1980 only a few small individuals are found the species rarity back then was most likely due to severely de- degraded habitats caused by pigs goats and rabbits introduced by humans to the island the removal of these invasive pests enabled black-winged petrels to colonize. Their population has since exploded, and now they are the most abundant of the 13 seabird species that breed on Phillip Island. They provide a high-quality food source for the centipede and have therefore likely helped the centipede rock population to recover. Ancient bone deposits in the soil suggest that prior to the black-winged petrels' arrival, Phillip Island was home to large numbers of other small burrowing nesting seabird species it's likely that the centipede preyed on these seabirds too can i ask like as you as you go through this story is there some part of your brain or is this just my stupid self that wants to like like have like to like be rooting for one of yes one of the species same same yeah like you're like like i'm I'm just following along being like who are the good guys and who are the bad guys here are the good guys the centipedes or the good guys the petrels and i think that's what for the petrels but i I, you know i don't know i think i think this story this story has been really well written though because it's been written from the point of view that you know both the centipedes and the petrels think they're the good guys and and they and they need each other they like they need each other for the both to continue to exist, even though they're they're like Batman and the Joker. Yeah, opposite yeah. sides of the same coin. They're, but, not th- they're not that different. These centipedes and these petrels, when it comes down to it. 
And and it sounds like uh, many of the petrels maybe did witness their parents being killed. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a formative experience that has created many a super petrol. <laughs> There's you know, a. Sorry, go ahead, Matt. No, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, uh, you know, to be one of these petrels and watch your parents get eaten, or I guess watch your chicks get eaten, um, would require a, a certain uh, stoic resolve, if you will. And um, do you know where you can go to learn about how to think like a stoic, Matt? I, I don't. Is, is, is there some kind of like online resource full of wonder? Yes, there is. We're talking about Wondrium. So our listeners know we've loved sharing all we've learned from the Great Courses Plus over the years. <laughs> yes, Data, you like that? Uh, so we've had fantastic feedback from a lot of you who have signed up also. And now the Great Courses Plus is Wondrium. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. It's everything we loved about the streaming service, but a lot more. Uh, and if you haven't signed up yet, what, what are you waiting for? It's free. You can go to wondrium.com slash probably you get a free month of unlimited access to all of their lectures, which you can listen to as audio or watch audio and video. You can do it in your TV, your laptop, uh, and mobile device. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you no so- longer have to fly to Cape Cod to listen to scientists and experts talk about their field. It's all right there on Wondrium. Um, yeah, there's a fun one on, on philosophy and, and applying it to modern life called Think Like a Stoic. Um, and if you think, spend a lot of time thinking about how to become a better person, that's exactly what Stoicism about, is about. Their wisdom applies so well to life today. Um, according to Stoic philosophy, people deserve compassion and respect simply because they are fellow human beings just like us. Uh, and I think we could all benefit from that reminder. Um, that's just I one don't know if I want many... more compassion in my life, Andy. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. To, to, uh, to, to quote the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, one may leap to heaven from a slum, arise then. Ooh, I love that. You must have watched some courses on Wonder. <laughs> or, just, just, or just be generally knowledgeable. I, 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 just, I just have a good... Uh, uh, I just retain some catchphrases from, from undergrad. That's great. But yes, this Think Like, Think like a Stoic course is really useful. There are classes on um, Stoics and decision-making, uh, anger management, lots of great stuff. So if you go to wondrium.com slash probably, you that will is- get that... Go ahead. That is W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash probably. Yeah, go check it out. You got nothing to lose and there's tons of great stuff to watch and things to learn. Hey, uh, you you know what, what other secret or knowledge from the past you could uncover? What's that? Mesopotamian secrets okay. that, that predates some of, uh, specifically some mathematics that predates Pythagoras by quite some way. That's recently we discovered. We got we got this tweeted in. I've, I'm trying to be better at making sure I check the Twitter comments as well. Justin of Earlwood, listener and tweeter, sent this to us. This Thank is you, trigonometry Justin. a thousand years before Pythagoras. Oh, right. Shots I didn't even know they had triangles around. back then. I thought everything was sort of had rounded sides and was <laughs> square or more. But at least four sides on everything, but no. For more than a century, an unassuming Mesopotamian clay tablet depicting a land sale has been lying in plain sight in an Istanbul museum. Sydney mathematician Daniel Mansfield has now revealed the 3,700-year-old artifact from the Old Babylonian period contains the earliest example of complex geometry in the world in, a re- in research published in the Foundations of Science. This story in the Sydney Morning Herald, by the way. It shows trigonometry did not begin with the Greeks studying the sky, but with Babylonians surveying the ground. Dr. Mansfield said the discovery and analysis of the tablet have important implications for the history of mathematics. For instance, this is over a thousand years before Pythagoras was born. You've got trigonometry, which is taught in schools, but now we've got this unexpected prequel where the Babylonians got there first. Are we going to have to change it to the babylonian theorem now yeah i think we i think we might okay. the the tablet known as known by with a catchy name si4227 dates from the old babylonian period which is between uh 1900 and 1600 bce i like that they use the bce notation um and isn't, Dr. That, isn't that pretty uh standard for science journals i think now? yeah it is yeah. but this is in the national newspaper instead of a science th- oh, webs yeah, yeah. Dr. Mansfield discovered the land surveyor used a type of trigonometry that is now known as Pythagorean triples to make accurate right angles. Uh, 
Pythagorean tree. It doesn't. Does, does that mean just integer like three, four, five? Are those Pythagorean? Yeah, I think I think that's what they're. I think that's what they're talking about. Three, four, five, five, twelve, thirteen, so on. It's it's a waltz. You know what I mean? It's a one, <laughs> two, three, and one, two, three. That's it. Wait, that was four. You did there. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> well, I, I don't even know. So SI-427 gives legal and geometric details about a piece of land that was split and sold off with a surveyor measuring out the new area and setting boundaries. Dr. Mansfield first heard about the unusual ancient clay tablets while reading records from an 1894 excavation in what is now the Baghdad province in Iraq before tracking it down in Turkey. He was immediately amazed by the presence of perfect rectangles on the tablet. I'm thinking, how did they get them so perfect? How would you do that? In 2017, Dr. Mansfield has speculated another artifact from the same period known as Plimpton 322 was a unique kind of trigonometric table, but he could only guess the purpose of it, hypothesizing that it had a practical use, possibly used to construct palaces and temples, build canals or survey fields. But Mansfield- Plim- Plimpton obviously is an ancient Babylonian word. Yeah, it's, an, it's, it's the name of the guy who first made the, the tablets, they reckon. It was just, he looked like a Plimpton by, by their reckoning. He just had a Plimptony vibe to him. You know, like when you're naming a pet or something, you just got to really look at them. How do they feel? Like this is like it's this got is a, like a Plimpton. Yeah, yeah it's really Plimptony. Um, with this new tablet, we can actually see for the first time why they are interested in geometry to lay down precise land boundaries. Doctor Mansfield said, "This is from a period when land is starting to become private. People started thinking about land in terms of my land and your land, wanting to establish a proper boundary and to have positively na- positive neighborly relationships." And that's what this tablet immediately says, is a field being split and new boundaries being made. See, that's not what I would have imagined of how private property would have evolved. How, like would, I, how would you think? I, like, I would have imagined that it, it would just involve swordplay. Like, there's some guy who's like, you know, it's just a lot of, like, cross this line and you die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, so just one, so one day you wake up and there's just a fence. There's, like, right. a, just a... And then there's a guy who's like, okay, fight me. Yeah. And then you're like, I'd rather not. So, <laughs> <laughs> Let's invent the geometry. <laughs> and, then yeah. the, and then the next day, the fence just is a little bit further into your land. Right. And then a little bit further until eventually you just have to get an, an army together. You need to raise an army. If, I mean, there certainly was war before there was agriculture. Oh, yeah. Hunter-gatherer tribes must have still been attacking each other for resources. Yeah. But I'm sure it got amped up once people decided they started owning things that are in place. Right. Uh, yeah, in, in hunter-gathered times, the form of combat was mostly your mama jokes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was pretty much the end of the article. It was, uh, I mean, like, there's a little bit of guff at the end. We could, we could, oh, we no, can add the fine. guff. <laughs> I, I'm, always, I'm, I'm always more of a, let's, let's cut the guff. That's, yes. that's my motto. I'm anti-guff. Let's cut uh, that guff. But I am pro um, <laughs> ways to avoid pro- prostate cancer. You are? Yes. This is an uh, article sent in by Sean Robertson, which I believe is how he's told us to pronounce it. There's no T, but it's basically Robertson without a T, I believe. Uh, this, this is a study that shows that men who ejaculate at least 21 times a month slash their risk of prostate cancer by a third. According I thought you to, said slash their wrists for a second. No, no, no. <laughs> Why would they? They're living their best lives. Uh, this is a Harvard study. Um, so yes, men who ejaculate more often have a lower risk of developing prostate cancer. Researchers from Harvard University analyzed data from nearly 32,000 men and found that ejaculating at least 21 times a month cut the risk of developing the cancer by one third. Uh, the links between ejaculation and prostate cancer Be right back. are not fully known. <laughs> we'll wait. We'll wait. Uh, however, some believe ejaculation could rid the prostate of carcinogens, lower inflammation, and also lead to less stress and better sleep, all of which can reduce risk of cancer. The American Cancer Society says prostate cancer is the most common cancer in U.S. men, aside from skin cancer. An estimated one in eight men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during the course of his lifetime. In 2021, it's estimated that more than 248,500 men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer and more than 34,000 will die from the disease. However, prostate cancer grows, typically grows slowly and if detected early while it's still confined to the prostate gland, there is a successful chance of treatment. Um, researchers who published their findings in European Urology analyzed self-reported data on ejaculation from men who participated in the study. Uh, this study was conducted from 92 to 2010. That is a long study of cranking it. Uh, with men completing surveys monthly, 
Frequency of ejaculation was analyzed when the men started the study in the men's 20s and in their 40s, and after adjusting for outside factors like body mass index, physical activity, consumption of food and alcohol, and life stressors like divorce, they determined that men who frequently ejaculated at least 21 times a month, again, that's uh, three weeks on, one week off, um, were one-third less likely to develop the cancer than those who ejaculated four to seven times a month. So these findings provide additional evidence of a beneficial role of more frequent ejaculation throughout adult life in the etiology, which I'm assuming is prevention, uh, of prostate cancer, particularly for low-risk disease, the authors wrote. Man, that is some, that is some of the best news we've had in the podcast in a while, I think. I, it, well, I think that news is, it's, I mean, it also feels like a bit of a, it could, it could go either way in the sense that, um, like what, uh, causation like, isn't ob- proven kind of, or no, what, like what a oblique backhanded diss of the guy who got prostate cancer. Like, oh, but, you know, like, oh, you got prostate cancer. That's horrible. Also, so condolences that you don't bust a nut enough. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, not only do you have prostate cancer and there's cancer and so you might have need to have chemo and die, but also you don't come that much. Now we all know. Like, so you have the, the experience of not coming and the shame on top of the cancer. Just like way to pile on a guy. How, Kick a guy when he's down. Right. But how things have changed now that you get mocked for not masturbating now. Like that's not uh, most people's um, life experience. It, but It doesn't say masturbate. It says ejaculate. This is true. It's, okay. So you're assuming that this is uh, – right, I guess. It could be – there's a whole variety of ways to variety. ejaculate. Is, I've, heard, I've heard of this. Expand your mind, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I only know of one – <laughs> sorry i was count one, it's pretty kinky it's just pretty counting kinky. yeah it is just one yeah just one. It's pretty much one uh but interestingly this link has been controversial <gasps> among other researchers there was a 2004 harvard study that found no links between ejaculation and prostate cancer an australian study published in 03 found that men who ejaculated often in young adulthood would grow up to have a decreased risk of the cancer a 2008 cambridge study found the rates um of prostate cancer increased alongside frequent masturbation, which you're right, is distinct but overlapping with ejaculation. So I don't know what to tell you guys. I, I, I got I to gotta assume uh, I'm, we should all be pro-ejaculation, though. It seems like the preponderance of evidence would say that's good for a number of reasons. Yeah, I, I'm just saying, like, you know, I mean, maybe sometimes you masturbate, sometimes you have consensual sex, sometimes you dry hump a pillow. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, there's... That sometimes you have a wet dream, sometimes you uh, have a spontaneous ejaculation just based on uh, divine inspiration. Like, there's lots of possibilities. Oh yeah, I forgot about the the, the god. Oh yeah. So yeah. see, I, I was lumping those all together in as as one method, um, which was sinfully. <laughs> uh huh. They're they're all just different types of sin, and so that's that's how I was counting it. Right. So you think like when okay. someone's in the been in the bathroom for too long, their parents are like, "Oh, he's in there preventing prostate cancer again." <laughs> it's always, always preventing prostate cancer when I have to get in and shower. <laughs> he's pre- pre- preventing prostate cancer three or four times a day. Yeah, very, very <laughs> preventative. Uh, so yes, thank you, Sean, for saying that. Is I don't know why you thought we would like that, but um... Can, does someone have the whatever? What's the ounce of prevention joke here? Oh right, right. Um, I can't think of anything that rhymes with um, euphemisms for semen in that saying. Yeah, Matt, you got yeah. Anything? Can you hear? Can you hear a car alarm right now? Is oh, that... I, I can a little bit. Yeah. Is that? Uh, does that mean someone's ejaculated? <laughs> that's... Yeah, sorry, that, that's that's the neighborhood ejaculation okay, alarm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just... One in your house or just like a neighborhood one? Yeah. Someone sometimes came, it's. A... So... Someone came so car so hard they set off the car alarm. <laughs> yeah, it's just all the birds flew out the trees. Yeah. Teslas just... are sensitive, though. To be fair, yeah. <laughs> Do you, I, I I was in a friend's Tesla and I hadn't been in one of the recent ones. Maybe they all have this now, but I didn't realize your Tesla also like logs a video record of anyone who walked near your car while it was parked. Did you guys know that? Ugh. Like, when you get back in your car, it like even if no one actually touched it, it would be like, do you want to watch the videos of people who came within inches of your car? Whether or not they were ejaculating on it, it'll record it anyway. But um, 
especially if that happens, I have to assume. Can you... Has you anyone rights, tried to... You have the rights to that video once it's been shot, I think, yeah. Yeah, because in, in California, you have to declare if you're filming someone. Yeah, I don't is, know how that works. If you come close to someone else's car, I guess you forfeit some kind of rights, or else Elon Musk just uh, went rogue. I don't know. I'm actually going to check now to see if that is my car that's going off. Oh, no. It's gone on for too long. Well, fingers crossed it's not Matt's car. In the meantime, let me see if I can bring up another story sent in by listeners. Let's see. Um, we got the centipedes down. We got the triangles. Um, I'll wait for Matt to get back to see if it's. We got the coming. Got the coming, yes. Um, a particle that just did something that changed the nature of reality. Oh, something stopped. Maybe it was Matt's car. Oh, no. Uh, it was not my car, and I'm sorry about that delay. Oh, how did you get it to stop if it wasn't your car? It just stopped naturally. It stopped of its own accord. Oh, okay. It sounded like you did something. No, I, I went outside the door, and then it stopped. Maybe maybe it was scared of me in some way. Uh. Do you want to hear a, a story about happy whales, but with a little bit of a twist? Ooh, or a little bit of a... They're not going to be happy for long? Oh, the Twilight Zone whale story. Yeah, like COVID has made whales a lot happier okay. on account of whale watching tours diminishing. Oh, well, they don't <laughs> like being. I thought they were exhibitionists. It's it's more the it's the boats. It's the engines from the boats. So whales in Alaska. The COVID pandemic brought tourism to a near halt in Alaska last year. What will happen to the majestic humpback whale when cruise ships and visitors return in August? There's a BBC story. Christine Gabrielle sat in her desk sat at her desk in the Glacier Bay National Park headquarters in Gustavus, Alaska, and turned up the volume on her computer. The sound of gurgling and bubbling water enveloped the room. The lull was occasionally punctuated by the hollow roar of a male harbor seal seeking to impress potential mates. Gabriel's computer is at the end of a five-mile underwater cable that stretches into the frigid waters of the bay, a national preserve teeming with fish, birds, sea otters, dolphins, lovelorn seals, and the area's feature attraction, several hundred humpback whales who migrate to Alaska from the waters around Hawaii during the summer months. What has been notable for the past 18 months was that she hadn't heard nearly as much uh, uh, of uh, the ships. During a normal summer, Glacier Bay and the surrounding air area buzzes with traffic as vessels of all sizes from massive 150,000 ton cruise liners to smaller whale watching boats ply the waters as part of a southern Alaska's massive tourism industry. The COVID pandemic brought all of that to a sudden halt. In 2019, more than 1.3 million people visited Alaska on cruise ships. In 2020, there were 48. (laughs) That's that's quite quite the drop off. Yeah. 1.3 1.3 million to 48. I can't believe they also know the exact number, but probably the same team that was working on the um, Phillip Island yeah. centipede. I'm going to say that I would be able to personally go on the counting team for this one. I would I could be able to move from my normal administrative duties yeah. to... Mm-hmm. I don't want to brag, but I can count up to beyond 48 comfortably. <laughs> Overall, marine dra- traffic in Glacier Bay declined roughly 40%. It, it takes about a dozen minutes of listening to the soothing hydrophone audio on a Thursday morning in late May to hear traces of human activity. In this case, the high-pitched whine of a small boat's propeller. This article is very florid. Is that the right word for that? It is. You know, there's, <laughs> it's not so much that it's, you know, upsetting. No, like no, it, no. But it's, um, but, you know, they've put some work into making it paint a picture. Mm-hmm. According to research by Gabriel and Cornell University professor Michelle Fournay, the level of man-made sound, the level of man-made sound in Glacier Bay last year dropped sharply for lower frequencies generated by the massive cruise ship engines. Peak sound levels were down nearly half. All this afforded researchers an unprecedented opportunity to study whale behavior in the kind of quiet environment that hasn't existed in the area for more than a century. By analyzing hydrophone data and taking a small park service boat into Glacier Bay three times a week to photograph and identify whales, Gabriel has already noticed changes. She compared whale activity in pre-pandemic times to human behavior in a crowded bar. 
they talk louder, they stay closer together, and they keep the conversation simple. <laughs> and they're constantly trying to fuck. <laughs> and if you play Sweet Caroline, they all turn into assholes. Yeah. <laughs> Do they? Uh, the whales? The, the, yeah, they all they yeah. love the dun-dun-dun part. It's just really funny. I don't hard. think that's asshole behavior, though. I think that's just, like, whales just being good, you know, having a laugh. Okay, okay, fine. Now the humpbacks seem to be spreading out across larger swathes of the bay. Whales can hear each other over about 2.3 kilometers, that's 1.4 miles, compared with pre-pandemic distances closer to 200 meters. Damn. That's, yeah, 650 feet. This has allowed mothers to leave their calves to play while they swim out to feed. Some have been observed taking naps. And whale songs, the ghostly whoops and pops by which the creatures communicate, have become more varied. Oh, this is great. Isn't it? catch, yeah. Well, (laughs) so out in the middle of Glacier Bay on a park service boat, it was easy to see why the area is such a tourist attraction. The jade green water is surrounded on three sides by sheer cliffs, glacier-fed waterfalls, and snow-capped peaks. You sold me, I'm in. The, the humpback way. Yeah, let's book a cruise right now. Uh, I want to get up there with one million of my closest friends. <laughs> <laughs> the humpback whales themselves are majestic. They spray mist with an audible rush as they surface to breathe. They display their enormous triangular tails, each as unique as a fingerprint, before returning to the depths. If visitors are lucky, they can witness a breach, a whale leaping out of the water in a remarkable display of... Oh, God. Is it Cetacean? Uh, cetacean cetacean or cetacean cetacean acrobatics god damn this writer before (laughs) crashing back into the water only then is the creature's remarkable size truly appreciable all this can be viewed from smaller whale boats or the luxurious cruise ships where passengers dine on lavish meals as their floating hotels ply the deep waters of the bay right up to the edge of the massive glaciers and some poor fuck comedian has to entertain them three (laughs) times a night Gabriel acknowledged that the COVID lull in tourism was only temporary. She says she hoped her research and long-standing efforts to regulate the ship traffic in Glacier Bay will allow a balance to be struck between the environment and the human desires to witness and be inspired by nature's grandeur. If the whales were enjoying the relative calm and quiet, they were not the only ones. Carla Hart uh, said, It used to be that you could just step outside the door and you were in quiet nature, but the tourism industry has put an end to that ideal. Hart lives in Juneau, the state capital and the de facto capital of the Alaskan cruise ship industry, about 50 miles from Glacier Bay as the seaplane flies. (laughs) Wow. During a typical tourist season when cruise ships pull into ports and disembark tens of thousands of passengers, sightseeing helicopters crossing over her house make conversations in her own home difficult. The lockdown, she said, gave people a taste of what Juneau could be like. The giant pause that we had because of the pandemic really gave an opportunity for people to rethink what we have and what we need and want, she said. Please tell me that she's about to say that um, that she, uh, without the tourists, she also was able to nap and spread further out <laughs> yeah. up to 200 meters from her children. <laughs> and that her seeing became more varied. Yeah, she's and making her, seeing her became more and she varied. was able to breach on <laughs> in an uninhibited fashion. So so she started she's gathered signatures for a ballot measure that would limit the time, days and sizes of cruise ships that could stop in Juno when the pandemic subsides. That would mean quieter times in Juno in the whale waters. They called their effort. Do you want to take a guess at the name of their of their I saw campaign? it already. It's, I can't I can't I can't cheat. I'll give you I'll give you a clue if you haven't seen it, NATO. It's one of the titles of one of the speed movies. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take the bus. That's it. <laughs> it cruise, so this cruise control efforts provoked a quick and forceful response from Juno's business community, which depends heavily on the money that the tourist-laden cruise ships bring to the town. So now there's a counter campaign called Protect Juno's Future, urging residents not to sign the petitions. That They popped up all over stores, plastered on walls and tucked in the pizza delivery box. Um, one of the heads of the tourist industry cried... Uh, I'm, I just added that bit. Good callback. Thank you. Employees at local shops were told by their managers that the proposals threatened their jobs. Yeah, it's a tricky one, though, because it is. Like, this is genuinely... This is a lot of people's livelihoods that depend on a quite destructive to the environment thing. I mean... I'm, that, yeah. Yeah, how, how destructive... Uh, I mean, I guess, yes, the whales seem stressed out. Is there a way of, like, measuring the sort of 
impact like you know yes it's not great but like is it like the whales like oh i guess we can deal with this or you know does it does it affect uh, reproduction or litter size or anything or yeah i mean if there is a big that's a big difference though between being like a mile apart and only being like 200 meters apart right and i'm not trying to be like callous about the enjoyment of the whales lives but um yeah everything's everything's a trade-off and if it's just sort of like puts the whales out a little bit, but doesn't, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. Like, I don't know which side to take on it either. Cause if you told me I had a choice between making whales have to be a little bit closer to their calves or putting like, you know, 20, those whales should be better parents. You can't let your, <laughs> let your children run amok out there. In the Thank you. Exactly. Bay. Well, we used to be able to, you know, when I was a kid, we could just let the whales. Yeah. They were latchkey whales. <laughs> we just, uh, cruise control has failed by the way this this oh. article goes on for quite a while so I won't read the whole thing we'll link to it in the show notes but this uh, cruise control has failed for the moment but the the debate and the conversation goes on and the what I'm curious about is like like um, somebody's telling me about this that there was a study about returning wolves to Yellowstone yes um, and like how it's not it wasn't just about the wolves returning but that that had like these effects to like restore the whole ecosystem in a whole variety of ways. Um, so I, I, I wonder like what are the other effects on the ecosystem of the whales being able to do whatever the fuck they want. That's a, that's a technical term. Yes. That's what the biologists um, always refer to it as. Yeah. I don't know. There's nothing, I don't think there's nobody who's um, trying to keep whale populations down as a rule. You never see that as a concern. So I don't know what having too much whale freedom Maybe there is no downside to that. They get uppity. Yeah, they get cocky. <laughs> the krill, the krill become endangered. Um, I can't think of a negative to having lots of whales. I mean, I guess the more whales you have, the less you need to have every tourist cruise go to one place. Would that be true? Well, I guess they're still those whales still like to go where they like to go. So I don't know. Yeah, you yeah, can't like, stop whales. You could just like like what if Glacier Bay was just like packed with whales? It was just like a big whale traffic jam because there were so many whales because they were all chilling in the bay because there weren't <laughs> enough tourists there. We have an uncomfortable number of whales. <laughs> yeah, it's a natural tourist touristy relationship that occurs yeah. between. It's a symbiotic it's uh-huh. nature's way to have tourists and exhibitionist whales showing off with their breaching. I mean, if they weren't doing it, they're kind of asking for it if they're breaching, right? (laughs) um, Yeah, I mean, like, just breaching whaley-nilly. Yeah. Whaley-nilly? Willy-nilly. Willy-nilly. Willy-nilly, obviously. Free willy-nilly. Short for (laughs) William Nilliam. (laughs) As opposed to Milliam Nilliam. (laughs) Okay, this is all right. Hey, NATO, we we just—it's been a long week. NATO, we 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 should wrap up this episode. But where can our listeners find you and everything you're doing? Uh, sure. Um, well, first of all, as I mentioned at the top, because of my organizing life, whenever I go on comedy podcasts, I get direct messages from people on Twitter and Instagram with organizing questions. So, oh. listeners of probably science who have organizing questions should feel free to DM me, and I'll try to help. Um, about how do you organize around this or that political problem. Um, so uh, happy to do that. Um, you can find me at NATO Green on Twitter, Mr. NATO Green on Instagram. I have uh, a few comedy albums out. The Whiteness album is my last album. And if you want to give the best support to the to the artist, which is me in this case, the way to do it is to buy it on Bandcamp. So please do that. Um, you can also hear me regularly on the Bugle podcast and on the Vituation Room podcast. Oh, I don't know. You're on the Bugle. I should. I haven't listened to that in a minute. I'll go back to that. Uh, yeah, I'm in the rotation on the Bugle. Awesome. It's a. Uh, it's a. It's a great. It's great fun. Very very cool. You can find us as always at probablyscience.com. You can find us at probablyscience on Twitter individually at Andy T Wood and at Matt Kirshen. Probablyscience@gmail.com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, and stories you would like us to cover. And uh, oh, I just. I also wanted to Wait. plug, I forgot, I have, I have a live thing coming up, um, provided the next three weeks don't make the Delta variant shut down the whole world. Uh, August 27th, Brian Cook and I are doing our next Guilty Treasure at Permanent Records Roadhouse in LA on the east side. Um, I don't know if we have a ticket link up yet, but August 27th, keep that up in your calendar if you want to come see some music and comedy. Oh, that's awesome. 
That's very cool. I'm going to be, if, if anyone lives near Atwater in, on the east-ish side of LA, I'm going to be doing a show at Eno Vino, the, the wine store that friend of the show Ryan Connor has started up. So I'm going to be doing that on Tuesday. That's like in the basement of the place, right? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good room. I remember that being a good spot. I've never been... I didn't even know it existed. Yeah, it's but... it's a, it's actually like a dedicated performance space where you're not competing with people who are there to drink wine and not see a show. So that's all you can Very ask cool. for. In, yeah. All we want in comedy. <laughs> people who are not surprised and put out by comedy's existence. <laughs> um. In the meantime, listeners, thank you so much for listening. NATO, thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you next time. Bye.